This morning we're beginning a series that will take us through First and Second Kings, hopefully. And before we start reading the text of this, we need to have some idea what we're getting into. So I'll remind us, first of all, briefly where these books sit in terms of the Bible's overall story. And then I'll give us some details about what's in these books because they may not be the most familiar to us. I'm saying these books, but First and Second Kings is actually intended to be one book. The division into two parts was simply because the whole of Kings wouldn't fit on one scroll when it was originally written. Scrolls could only be so long. So we've inherited that division in our Bibles today, but First Kings and Second Kings really are one continuous narrative. So we're going to deal with it that way. So then where does kings fit in the storyline of the Bible? Well, after the sin of Adam and Eve and the loss of fellowship with God that came out of that sin, God outlined his rescue plan for the world. He did that in a series of promises made to Abraham. God promised to bless Abraham, to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, to give them the land of Canaan, And God also promised that from Abraham's descendants, blessing would come to all peoples on earth. Well, years later, Abraham's descendants did grow into a great nation, but they were a nation of slaves initially in Egypt. Through Moses, God delivered them from Egypt. Then through Joshua, years after that, God brought the Israelites finally into the land he had promised them, into Canaan. And in Canaan, eventually, he gave them a great king, David. Under David's leadership, Israel prospered. In many ways, David's reign was a golden age. Not in every way, but in many ways. Then one and two kings pick up the story at the tail end of David's reign. About 970 years before the birth of Christ. These books are then going to take us through approximately 400 years of Israel's history. Right up to Israel's exile in Babylon. Out of the land God had promised. In my Bible, First and Second Kings together take up 64 pages. That might seem like a lot, but covering 400 years of history in 64 pages means that an awful lot has to be left out. And we know the writer was using historical records that were much, much more detailed. He mentions some of his sources as he goes along in the books. Usually he mentions them to say, if you want to read more about this particular king, you can go and look him up in this particular book. So it's important for you and I to realize the writer of Kings is not trying to provide an exhaustive history of Israel from David to the exile. That is not his purpose. That had already been done. He had those books sitting in a pile on the corner of his desk. Now those sources are not available to us today, but they were available at the time. So what the writer of Kings is doing is selecting details out of those 400 years of history. That masses of detail. 
He selects. And as we'll notice, when we go through, he doesn't always select what would have seemed the most newsworthy things at the time they happened. He doesn't just go for the headlines. Some kings who reign for a long time are just dealt with in a summary sentence. Some international incidents are barely mentioned at all. And lots of ordinary, apparently insignificant people and events have several chapters devoted to them. So actually the title of the book is a bit misleading. There certainly are plenty of kings in the book. Almost 40 of them. And some of them are real stinkers. Nasty pieces of work. But we also hear plenty in these books about people who never set foot in a palace. And right at the heart of it all are the prophets, God's messengers. In fact, the whole middle chunk of kings deals with the ministry of the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elisha. But there are others as well. We're going to see one of them this morning. So the book uses the reigns of kings to mark the progress of time through history. But it's concerned with much, much more than just giving us a list of kings. The writer is very concerned to get the facts right. But he's concerned about more than just presenting us with historical facts. He's writing to teach us about God and his ways. He's writing to show us God is not only interested in the big events and the big people that make the news. The writer of Kings also wants to show us the weakness of human wisdom. We'll see that again and again. And he wants us to see the weakness of the human heart. And the focus on the prophets is here to teach us the viewpoint that matters most is always God's viewpoint. And the word that matters most is always God's word. Biblical history is never just history. Every time we read biblical history, we have to remember some of Paul's words in the New Testament. Speaking to Christians about Old Testament events, Paul said, these things were written down for us to teach us, to guide us, to warn us and encourage us in our own situation today. So over the next months, let's read these books not just to learn about Israel's history. That will appeal to some of us and it won't appeal to others of us. But let's read these books expecting to hear from God ourselves as we look at Israel's history. Let's read them expecting to grow in our own worship and to grow in our own confidence in God. And with that introduction, we're going to turn this morning to 1 Kings chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that in page uh, 334 or in the larger print 513. And it all starts with a crisis in the kingdom. We're going to read verse 1 down to verse 27. When King David was very old, 
He could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him, so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoholeth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has become king? And our Lord David knows nothing about it. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit in my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall become king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, as, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. 
at this very moment, they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who would sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? This is God's word. For as long as I can remember, British people have been talking about who is going to follow Queen Elizabeth. Now I think it's accurate to say our Queen is well thought of by most people. Even those who don't have much time for the monarchy as an institution, by and large they still seem to have respect for our current Queen. But when it comes to her successor, well, it's a bit different. There are some who might prefer to skip a generation and have William take the throne after our queen. And today, we're probably all used to light-hearted, off-hand conversations about royal succession. Might be a bit of an ongoing debate, but it doesn't really impact us that much. I doubt that any of us ever lose any sleep over it. Maybe you do, but I'm doubting that. But that was not the case in ancient Israel in 970 BC. Because King David was not just a symbolic figurehead in Israel. In human terms, it was David who had made Israel. Saul was Israel's first king, but before David there really was no coherence. There was no real kingdom at all. It was just a bunch of tribes who sometimes could be persuaded to pitch up together to try and fight off an enemy. But starting just as a young boy when he faced Goliath, David had led Israel in battle against her enemies. For decades, time and again, David led Israel to great victories. As one of those victories, he captured the city of Jerusalem, the city that had seemed impossible to capture. And that city became the center of David's kingdom. All Israel united under David. And he built a powerful kingdom, a kingdom that had international significance. It was noticed in the wider world. Now we know that David was far from perfect. There were some shaky times during his reign. But he kept the kingdom together. And Second Samuel summed up his reign by telling us David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. At this point in time, it is hard to imagine Israel without David. But the David you and I are introduced to here in 1 Kings chapter 1 is a far cry from the David we know from 1 and 2 Samuel. A man at the height of his powers and his strength. The David we meet here lets us know that we are facing a crisis. David himself is old and cold. 
And even though his attendants come up with this idea to search Israel for a beautiful young woman, and even though they tuck her into bed with David, it has no effect. Now we might wonder what exactly was supposed to happen when Abishag lay in bed beside King David. We might have questions about the morality of what the attendants do here. But one thing we're left in no doubt about is that David has not long to live. Remember, this is the man who previously almost lost his whole kingdom because of the power of his lust for Bathsheba. In younger years, he was a man of powerful passions. But now his attendants put a young beauty in his bed and her beauty is emphasized for us and nothing happens. At the end of verse 4, the NIV says, the king had no sexual relations with her. And we could debate when we read that. Is that a comment put here so we can applaud David's restraint? Is it a comment about David's holiness? Or is it here to tell us David has not long to live? In the wider context of these verses, I think we have to say what is being highlighted is that David's life is close to the end. Literally it says, he did not know her. And that means, of course, nothing sexual happened. But it does lead us to ask, what else does David not know at this point in his life? What else is David oblivious to at this point? What else is David not doing as he lies there old and cold? Well, the answer is David is not finishing his work as king. His very last responsibility is to make sure his successor is in place. But David apparently has lost his concern for the kingdom. There's no indication his mind is failing at all. We'll see proof of that later in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. David's mind is clear, but he's old and he's cold and he's tired. And he's not just leaving Abishag alone, he has switched off from his responsibilities as Israel's king. And what you and I need to remember is the kingdom we're talking about here is not just David's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. One of the important background passages for understanding First and Second Kings is Second Samuel chapter 7. At the height of David's reign, the prophet Nathan comes and he delivers God's promise to David. Nathan says that God is going to give David a dynasty. He's going to establish the kingdom way beyond David's lifetime. And from David's line, there's going to come a king who will reign forever on an eternal throne. At that time, David responded to God's promise with great enthusiasm. He prays this great prayer in the second half of 2 Samuel 7. And later on, it seems that God also showed David who was to succeed him. God sent Nathan again, this time with the message 
that God loved Solomon. So David knew God's promise. He apparently knew God's will for his successor in the immediate time. But David is old, he's cold, he's tired, and he's quitting before his work is done. And to everybody else in the kingdom, that equals a crisis of huge proportions. If David dies without putting a successor in place, the kingdom could fall apart. Israel could split apart. Other nations could see their opportunity to invade and seize power in Israel. When God's people asked, will the kingdom survive? They had plenty of reasons to panic. And if we fast forward about 400 years to the time 1st and 2nd Kings was actually written, we find that the Israelites at that time were a people in exile. In their time and place, they were asking, will the kingdom survive? Is there a future for God's people? And how many times since that have God's people asked the same question? Today, do you ever wonder, where is the church going to be in 50 years? Where's it going to be in 20 years? At a time when it seems almost impossible to be in politics and still hold to biblical views. At a time when the vast majority of people in Britain wouldn't even consider attending a church. At a time when it seems to be assumed you can't believe the Bible and be serious about science and facts. At a time when gender confusion is getting more confusing by the month. In the midst of all that, do you ever wonder about the future of God's kingdom? As the Israelites in exile read 1 Kings chapter 1, and as you and I read it today, we need to grasp that from day one, God's promises have seemed to face insurmountable crises. God's kingdom has seemed to be on the verge of falling right from day one. Remember, when God started the whole thing off by choosing Abraham and Sarah, he chose an elderly couple, a very elderly couple, with no children. There will always be a crisis facing God's kingdom. There always has been. The fulfillment of God's promises will always seem precarious to us. Whether it happens to be persecution from the government, whether it happens to be sheer apathy from the culture around us, or hostility, or whether the problem seems to be a church that's so mired in sin itself, it has no witness at all, it seems, to the culture around Whatever the crisis happens to be, there's always going to be a crisis. And we need to remember that none of those crises take God by surprise. None of those crises can ever outmaneuver him. None of them can cause his purposes to fail. 
Those purposes looked set to fail at the very first hurdle of Abraham and Sarah's infertility. They again looked set to fail as David lay old and cold and inactive in his bed. And God's purposes, though, are still being unfolded 3,000 years after David's death. You and I need to remember that or we might make the same mistake that Joab and Abiathar made. In this panic over the kingdom's future, these two men backed an attractive option, Adonijah the handsome. Have a look at verse 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by saying, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. Adonijah is David's fourth son. David's first son, Amnon, was killed by his third son, Absalom. Absalom was then killed himself while leading a rebellion against David. And it seems son number two, Kaliab, is also dead by this point. That makes Adonijah the oldest surviving son. That gives him a strong claim to succeed David. And we're told Adonijah is very handsome. Now, if you and I know anything at all about Israel's history, we know when someone is introduced and their looks are the only positive thing worth mentioning about them, then alarm bells should be going off in our heads. Israel's first king, Saul, was introduced with the comment that he was handsome and he was a head taller than anyone else. And Saul proved to be a rotten king. Then later Absalom was introduced by telling us he was handsome, he didn't have any spots at all, and he had long hair with impressive volume. Absalom then proceeded to try and overthrow David, who was not only his own father, but he was God's anointed king. So here... When Adonijah's profile just says, very handsome, brother of Absalom, you and I ought to beware. In fact, all Israel ought to have been wary at this point. But in a crisis, many people are so desperate that they'll grasp after any option that looks attractive. Joab and Abiathar are certainly desperate. Joab was David's military commander. We learn a lot about him in 2 Samuel. We know he's a man who certainly cares about the kingdom. But we know too, he has a history of making rash, impetuous decisions. Joab loves to take action to sort things out. But he doesn't like to think before he does it. So Joab often jumps at easy solutions. 
He has done it in the past with Absalom. There was a time when he thought Absalom was the future. And he does it here again with Adonijah. There's a crisis. It's got to be solved. Israel needs a king, and here's Adonijah. Let's get him on the throne. That'll fix the crisis. Abiathar the priest joins Joab, but notice there are also significant people who don't join him. They're not convinced about this attractive option. And when Adonijah plans his big I'm the new king party, notice who he doesn't invite to the party. Down in verse 10. He did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. Presumably Adonijah excludes these people because he knows they won't support him. He may even know that Solomon is supposed to be the next king. But at this point, Nathan and Benaiah seem like the also rams. The momentum seems to be all with Adonijah. Those who don't join him look like they're going to be left behind. Solomon certainly hasn't put himself forward. He hasn't gone on a campaign. He doesn't go around like Adonijah does with chariots and horses and 50 men running ahead of him. And there's nothing here about Solomon being handsome. Israel here is facing the kind of pressure that God's people always face in a crisis. The pressure to go along with the popular opinion. In the last few years, how many times have we heard the church needs to change its teaching if it's going to survive? The church has to adapt its morals or it isn't going to exist in 50 years. And sometimes that advice comes from within the church. Faced with a culture that says we are the final judges of what's right and wrong. We are the wise ones when it comes to how human beings should live in order to flourish. Faced with that around us, Sometimes people in the church try and solve the crisis by going with what's popular. Instead of the church bringing God's message to God's world, the church begins to ask the world around us what we ought to believe and what they would like us to tell them. And when people in the church take that approach, usually they're not trying to destroy the church. They're desperately trying to save it. Just like Joab trying to save the kingdom by backing Adonijah. But they forget when the church faces a crisis, the question for us to ask is not, what do we think will work? The question to ask is, what has God said? God knows how to run his kingdom better than we do. God knows how to preserve his church better than we do. So when crises come, rather than worrying about what's popular, let's go back to God's word and be ready to stick with it. That's what the prophet Nathan did. 
And it turns out eventually that in this crisis, Nathan is the man who mattered. Nathan lives by God's word. We've already seen it was years before this that Nathan brought God's promise to David. The promise of an eternal king from David's line. It was also Nathan who brought the message that the Lord loved Solomon. And here, against all appearances, against what's popular, Nathan stakes his future and he stakes the future of God's people on God's word. And it is hard for you and me to grasp how much guts that took. We sit here today and we all know that Solomon did succeed David. But during the crisis, it wasn't at all obvious who would be the next king. In fact, it looks highly unlikely at this point that it would be Solomon. Here in 790 BC, the momentum is all with Adonijah. And even when Nathan confronts David, who knows how David is going to respond? Will he even respond or will he just roll over in his bed? And if Adonijah succeeds, the very first thing he'll do will be to get rid of those who didn't join him. But Nathan lives by God's word. He backs the king God has chosen. And today, you and I have all heard of Solomon. But did you know the name Adonijah before today? At the time, Adonijah appeared to be the future. But Nathan refused to go with popular opinion. He stuck with God's word and he was the one who ended up on the right side of history. You and I need to have the same kind of trust in God's word. During every new crisis, it's going to look like God's word has had its day. But time will show only God's word stands forever. Popular ideas come and go very, very quickly. Public opinion changes like fashion changes. Only God's word and God's purposes are eternal. One other thing to notice about Nathan. Nathan's confidence in God's word does not make him complacent. Nathan is not the kind of man who says, if God's going to do it, he'll do it. I'll go back to bed while I'm waiting for God to rise David and install Solomon. No, Nathan acts in accordance with God's word. He gets involved in God's kingdom. He uses the opportunities and the openings God has given him. Nathan commits himself to serve God's purposes, not just to believe in them. Now we already know that he had access to the king, but he also calls in the help of Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. She's David's wife, and Nathan asks her to use her influence. 
She goes to David, and down in verse 17, we're told, she said to him, My Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall become king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my Lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. Bathsheba says, David, it's not enough that you've told me about Solomon. All Israel needs to hear it from you. You have to rouse yourself and see this through. Then in the final verses of our passage, Nathan comes and he repeats the challenge to David. We'll see next week how David responds. But for now, Nathan is the one for us to think about. Faced with a crisis in the kingdom and presented with a popular solution to the crisis, Nathan sticks with God's word. And he doesn't hide behind the couch and wait for God's word to prevail. He sticks his head up and he allows himself to be counted as a believer in God's word. He does what he can for the cause of God's king. You and I are called to do the same. Don't let crises make you panic. We all feel like doing that sometimes. But the history of God's people has been full of crises. Right from Old Testament Israel until today. God's purposes usually look to us like a house of cards just ready to fall. And so there are always going to be temptations for us to go with what's popular. But as God's people, we stick with God's word. And we do what we can for the cause of Jesus, our King. At home, at work, at school, college, university, we're willing to stick our head up and be counted as his followers. We take our priorities and our standards from God's word. That's what shapes our lifestyle. Not what happens to be popular this month. We don't take our cues from that. All of that changes way too quickly. But God's word lasts. His throne is eternal. And his kingdom will never end. Let's renew our confidence in God. And let's recommit ourselves to him as we sing together, Our God reigns. Awake, awake, O Zion.